privilege of seeing some of its work overseas, you realize that a small church can have a big impact, whether it's in India or South America or South Africa. So I would echo that advice to get that from the frontiers and to read it. You'd, I think you'd be pleasantly surprised. The subject this morning, the theme this morning is the word change. And there are really two, two schools of thought about change. There's the school of thought that says there really is no change things stay pretty much the same. It was the French um, novelist and writer in the 19th century who put it this way. He said, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Let me give you an example. On the subject of youth culture, these two commentators had this to say. I see no hope for the future of our people if they are dependent upon the frivolous youth of today, for they are reckless beyond words. When I was young, We were taught to be discreet, respectful of elders, but the present youth are exceedingly disrespectful and impatient. Another writer put it this way, the youth of today love luxury. They have bad manners and contempt for authority. They show disrespect for elders and love chatter in in place of exercise. Youth are now tyrants, not the servants of their households. They no longer rise when elders enter the room. They contradict their parents. They chatter before company. They gobble up food at the table and tyrannize their teachers. Now, these are not editorials from the Daily Mail. These are comments from an 8th century Greek poet, Hesiod, and a 4th century Greek philosopher, Plato. And you could say that these criticisms, these observations, have been repeated from time immemorial. It's no new subject to complain about young people and their behavior and to say that things were better back when. The more things change, the more they stay the same. But let me quote two ancient authors who put a very different case forward. Instead of the no change uh, point of view, they put forward a case saying that all change, all must change, all needs to change, and indeed all has changed. The first ancient author puts it this way. I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Another ancient writer puts it this way. He said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. The first is obviously Jesus of Nazareth. You must be born again. Radical change is absolutely essential. If you want to see God, if you want to know God, there must be a change of mind and a change of heart. And the second author, the Apostle Paul, puts it this way, if any man is in Christ, the old is gone and the new has come. A new creation has been brought into being. And he speaks from a man of authority, but also a man of experience. So the Bible puts forward this second case very persuasively, that all changes, all must change. You must change and I must change. And the proposition that we have before us is that God is the author of change. He changes everything. Our text today comes from the smallest, the shortest of Paul's letters. If you turn in your Bibles to Philemon, and it's just one page, and you'll find it just before the book of Hebrews. It's on page 1200 in the New Testament. And this is very much a personal letter. The apostle Paul is writing to a personal friend, Philemon. And he's writing about a third person, a man called Onesimus. Paul, Philemon, Onesimus. Those are the three key characters. And since it's so short, I'll read this. We'll read this together. Philemon, uh, the whole of that letter. Paul, a prisoner 
of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith, so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement, because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. Therefore, Although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. I then, as Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I'm sending him who is my very heart back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from, the, from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one thing more. Prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. God changes everything. God changes everyone. And this short letter presents us with three persuasive case studies. If you're in university, very many subjects use case studies to illustrate points. It could be social work. It could be medicine. Here's a person, and let's study their lives to learn about their health or learn about their education or whatever it may be. But the three case studies that are brought before us today are the Apostle Paul, Philemon, and thirdly, Onesimus. And if my point is this, that God changes everything or God changes everyone, in case study number one, we find that God changes a persecutor into a preacher. You can read this account in the letter to Galatians written by Paul. And he gives us a brief word of testimony. And it's a great reminder that if you have an opportunity to give your testimony, take it. Take the opportunity to tell what God has done in your life. Give him the credit. Give him the glory. Because people need to see living illustrations of the grace of God. 
That's what the Apostle Paul was 2,000 years ago. And that's what you, Christian, are today. You're an illustration of the grace of God. You're an illustration of the power of God. And as people see you, and as people understand that it's God who has worked in you through Jesus, they recognize the power of the gospel and the grace of Jesus himself. Galatians chapter 1, at the end of that chapter, this is Paul reflecting upon his own experience. Chapter 1 at verse 21, he says, Later, I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praise God because of me. The persecutor becomes the preacher. But notice, too, that the persecutor becomes the persecuted. The opening words of Philemon, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. What a change occurred. Saul of Tarsus, the apostle Paul. Saul of Tarsus, his great desire was to take people prisoner for Christ in the sense that those who acknowledged Jesus, he wanted to arrest. He wanted to stop this sect in its very beginning. And now we see the Apostle Paul, himself the recipient of persecution, himself now the prisoner of Christ Jesus. And what a change occurred in this man's life. In fact, you can say that apart from the ministry of Jesus Christ himself, there was no greater uh, Christian ministry in the 2,000 years of the Christian church than the Apostle Paul. The persecutor, the blasphemer, becomes the church planter, becomes the evangelist, becomes the author of discipleship, the great writer of most of the New Testament letters, God changes the hearts and minds of people. The Apostle Paul changed from the very inside, the persecutor becoming now the preacher. The second case study is Philemon. And in this regard, we're told that the slave owner now becomes a friend and fellow worker. We don't get much in the way of um, biographical information about Philemon, but what we do get is quite illustrative. Notice in verse 1 of Philemon, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, uh, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. So Philemon is described as a friend and fellow worker. And he's also described as a householder. Now that last fact is quite significant because in the ancient world, to own a house was a statement. If you had your own house, if you had a house that could accommodate a group of people, that meant that you had wealth. That meant that you were a person of position, of power. But what we're also told is not only is Philemon a wealthy man, but Philemon is now a fellow Christian that he had heard the gospel message. He was a resident of the city of Colossae. He had heard the gospel and had come to know the Lord Jesus. So that Paul, the apostle, can describe him in these glowing terms. Dear friend and fellow worker. Now to be a fellow worker with the apostle Paul, you have to have the same boss. You have to have the same employer. The apostle Paul, of course, was working for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so too, now Philemon. He's an owner of slaves. We recognize that as we read through uh, the letter. Uh, because Onesimus, the runaway slave, was Philemon's slave. So he had his own home. He had his own servants. He had power. He had wealth. 
but he had come to hear the gospel and he had come to believe in Jesus Christ. So you see, the gospel message cuts across barriers. Because Philemon, again, the, the, the name itself would be a Greek name. The Apostle Paul, we know Paul was a Jew. So we see class distinctions cut across. We see cultural distinctions done away with. So that this wealthy Greek and this scholastic Jew are now friends and fellow workers for Jesus of Nazareth. The change that is brought about by the gospel. And we see this time and again in the church of Jesus Christ. We see this here in Dundee. You'll see this in Edinburgh. That if we were to ask ourselves, if we were to write down our interests, if we were to write down our backgrounds, you might say to yourself, there's very little necessarily that would bring this group of people together. You may come from different places. You may have different courses of study. You may have different family lives. And yet we are here together. Why? Because Jesus is precious to us. So it doesn't matter your culture. It doesn't matter your first language. It doesn't matter your level of education. It doesn't matter about your hobbies or interests. Because if you're a Christian today, your chief interest is Jesus. Because you recognize what he has done for you. That he has given his life as a ransom. He has taken your place. He has substituted himself on the cross for you. So you see how Jesus brings different people together. Different backgrounds and different cultures, different classes, different socioeconomic levels. So the Apostle Paul and Philemon can be friends and fellow workers when very little else would tie these two men together. So that's case study number two. Apostle Paul number one, Philemon number two. And then we have Onesimus, case study number three. Now we only hear of him, as it were, in the third person, Paul is writing to Philemon, but the subject of the letter is this man, Onesimus. And if you just look down in um, verse 8, Paul introduces Onesimus at the very middle of the letter. He says, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love, I then, as Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son, Onesimus, who became my son while, he, while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. And then later in verse 15, he says, Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me and even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if, again, you look at the change in Onesimus, the before and the after, you know, the, you often see these adverts. You can see them in glossy magazines. You can see the house before this new coat of paint. And, of course, the idea is that if you see what the house looked like before the coat of paint and you see what it looked like after the coat of paint, you'll say, well, I'm going to paint my house with that kind of paint. Because if it can make that kind of difference, that's the kind of paint I would want to buy. So the advert encourages the, the viewer or the reader to purchase the product that is being promoted. Now look at this picture here, the before. We have this man, Onesimus, and he is described as a slave. That was a statement, uh, that's what he was. But he was described in these terms, he was described as useless. And that's a play on words because Onesimus is a Greek word which means useful. 
And that's a good word for a servant. You would expect somebody that was serving you to be useful. Somebody that was serving you to do what you want them to do and not do what you didn't want them to do. The letter also makes it quite clear that it appears as though not only did this slave, this servant, run away, he was separated from his master, but he probably ran away with some of his master's goods. As Paul says, if you consider him a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. That's the old Onesimus. The old Onesimus, the runaway slave, the renegade, the rebel, the man who wanted to do things his way, is described as useless. And isn't that an interesting way of summarizing what we are like outside of the grace of God, outside of the new life that we have in Jesus? Because we are exactly the same, aren't we? We want to do what we want and how we want We want to order our lives, and we don't want people to tell us what to do. You can't tell me what to do. You don't have authority over me. You're not my parent. You're not my, I'm not a slave. And that's exactly what Onesimus' story was. He did what he wanted, as he wanted. And as a servant, he was not a very useful servant, quite the opposite. That's the before. And then he comes in contact with the Apostle Paul in prison, providentially, wasn't planned, wasn't expected, not by Onesimus. He didn't run away thinking, I'm going to go to Rome, I'm going to get my freedom, I'm going to be anonymous, and I'm going to meet a Christian in prison, and I'm going to become a Christian. That wasn't his plan, but that was God's plan. And when you look back in your own experience, I'm sure you see these events that at the time you couldn't explain. People coming into your life, opportunities coming up, or opportunities not coming up, And you realize now that God was getting your attention or God was opening doors so that he could engage with you, putting you in touch with his people, putting you in touch with his church, maybe showing you that life really wasn't what it was all cracked up to be when you live it your own way by your own standards. So Onesimus finds himself in the company of the Apostle Paul and Paul now describes him as a son. He's now become a son through the gospel. Though Paul was in chains, the gospel wasn't chained. Though Paul was restricted, the grace of Jesus Christ wasn't restricted. And sometimes we think that when circumstances are bad, whether it's economic circumstances, political, we we think, well, the church is limited and the gospel is limited and therefore the, the work of the gospel must, of course, be reduced. But not so. The greatest preacher, the greatest evangelist, the greatest church planter that the world knew or ever knew was sitting in a prison cell. And you would think, well, that's, you can't do anything there except evangelize Caesar's household, except witness to anyone and everyone that he is in chains for the gospel. So never let your circumstances limit or, you know, or, or restrict what you do for Jesus and for the church. Because your circumstances are not by chance, but they're deliberate. God put Paul in a prison. And God put Onesimus in his company for a purpose. And what you are doing now, which might seem to be um, useless, you might think that, why am I in this course? Why am I in this city? Why am I living in this flat? Why am I... You know, you, you could ask all these questions and you might have no easy answer. But God knows If you're a Christian today, you're placed in your family for a reason, and you're placed in your your course of study for a reason, or you're placed in your flat or home for a reason, your place of work for a reason, or among your friends for a reason. 
So the useless slave now becomes a son and a brother. A son to Paul, and he says to Philemon, he says he's now become your brother. He once was useless. He's now useful. I can testify that he's useful. He's useful to me. He helps me in prison, and he can help you. He's much better than a slave because he's now a slave and a brother. And as we look at these three case studies, that gives us the question that we have to ask ourselves, have you experienced this change personally? Can you identify with Paul or identify with Philemon or identify with Onesimus that no matter what you once were, now as a Christian you have meaning and purpose. You have a new life, a new heart, a new mind. Because Jesus changes you from the inside out. Nothing is required. You don't have to have a certain background or a certain level of academic achievement. You don't have to come from a certain family or speak a certain language. But whoever you are, wherever you're from, He changes you. Have you experienced that change firsthand? But there's a second proposition that I'd like to make this morning. And this is maybe more difficult for us to to apply, but it's the key to this letter. It's that God makes his people change makers. Not only does he change us, but he enables us to bring about change in other situations, in, in other people's lives. So we experience the change, but then he wants us to put that change into practice for the benefit of others. That's why Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. Now, he is the ultimate peacemaker. He brings peace between us and God. So Jesus is the peacemaker. But he says, no. He says, yeah, but he says to uh, to us as a people, he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. So if we receive the peace of God... He expects us in turn to become peacemakers in others' lives. And likewise here, we have three people whose lives have been changed by the gospel, but there's one problem. Let me use this as an illustration, and only those of a certain age will maybe understand it fully. The old television set, you had to make sure the television set was adjusted properly. And you had to adjust it horizontally and vertically. And there were these, these dials on the table. Young people might not believe this, but you, you had to do this. You had, because if you didn't have the horizontal right, you know, you, it'd be kind of squint or off-center. And especially the vertical. If the vertical wasn't perfect, you'd have this picture then going up and down and up and down and up and down. So you had to make sure that the horizontal and the vertical were both adjusted. Now, if you look at these three men, their relationship with God was now right. They had a vertical relationship with God, this from, from our level to his level. But there was something wrong with the horizontal. Now, what do I mean? If there are three people here, there are three relationships. We have Paul, Philemon, and Esimus. Let's look at the relationships. Paul and Philemon, good relationship. They're friends, they're fellow workers. Paul and Onesimus, that's a good relationship. It looks like a father-son relationship. Paul describes him as my son. He became my son through my chains. But there's a problem with the Philemon-Anesimus relationship. That relationship isn't working. The slave owner and the runaway slave. There's a broken relationship. And what does the Apostle Paul do? He comes into this situation... And he wants to make peace where there is no peace. He wants to bring reconciliation where there is no reconciliation. And this is the challenge for us. We can say, yes, I'm a Christian. God has come into my life. Jesus has forgiven my sins. 
But what do you do with the grace of God? How do you respond or put into practice or put into to, to, to work all that God has given you? Because the Apostle Paul was not content to say, I'm going to heaven because I believe in Jesus. Philemon's going to heaven because he believes in Jesus. And Onesimus is going to heaven because he believes in Jesus. So we're all going the same place. Okay, so there's a breakdown in relationships here on earth. Well, that doesn't really matter because we're all on the right path and we're all going the same way. No. He knows there's a broken relationship and he doesn't want to leave that relationship broken because it doesn't command the gospel. Because it works against the message of the gospel. And if there are broken relationships in your life, broken relationships in the church, we who have been changed must seek to be change makers, to bring about that change in other people's lives. And I'd like you to notice how Paul does it, because that's the key. Paul not only exercises his authority, and he has authority as an apostle, but notice the attitude, his attitude, the way in which he goes about persuading Onesimus or Philemon to do the right thing by Onesimus because Philemon is aggrieved. He's lost his servant and probably some of his own money along the way. And now Paul is sending back that servant with a letter. And he he says in the letter this in verse 4, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. And I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. What does Paul do there? What we have is an example of mutual affection, He loves Philemon, and he knows that Philemon loves him. Mutual encouragement. He wants to encourage Philemon. I'm praying for you. And he recognizes that Philemon has been an encouragement to him because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. And there's appreciation, mutual appreciation. I appreciate what you have done, and I know that you have appreciated what I have done. So you see what Paul's doing here. He is bringing about reconciliation. He is bringing about change, and he's using an attitude... That is persuasive. I brought along a copy of a book that over the years has sold 15 million copies. That's a lot of copies of hardback books. This is a copy, I think, from the 50s or early 60s, How to Win Friends and Influence People. That's not a Christian book, but it has a lot of Christian principles in it. And I would suggest that every Christian would do well to read a book like this and to learn from it Because sadly, many Christians could write a different book. How to create enemies and alienate people. That's what we're good at. We're good at putting people off. We're good at putting people's backs up. We're good at offending rather than persuading. Let me just give you, I mean, the opening opening, uh, page says this. What are the six ways of making people like you? What are the 12 ways of winning people to your way of thinking? What are the nine ways to change people without giving offense or arousing resentment. I'd like to know those ways. I'd like to know how to go about doing the right thing in the right way, with the right motivation, with the right attitude. Now, you don't need to read Dale Carnegie, but you can read the Apostle Paul to the same effect. Because what does he do? He wants to mend a broken relationship. And he's honest. He knows it's broken. But how does he go about it? Does he say, Philemon, here's your runaway slave take him back. I'm telling you to take him back. It's the right thing to do and do it. 
I've done everything for you, now you need to do this for me. No, he doesn't say that. He begins with prayer, he begins with appreciation, he begins with encouragement, and he does the right thing in the right way. He wants to bring about a reconcili- a genuine reconciliation. Because a grudging reconciliation is no reconciliation at all. You know what a grudging reconciliation is? Where you, where you kind of just you know, grit your teeth and you say, oh yes, I, I accept your apology, or okay, uh, let's let bygones be. And you know you haven't accepted the apology. You know bygones have not be, are not bygones and that the, the hatchet is not buried and the grudge is still very much alive. That's not the reconciliation that Paul wants to bring about. Just to give you a little taster from the book, he says there are two, three fundamental techniques in handling people. Don't criticize, condemn, or complain. Give honest and sincere appreciation and arouse in the other person an eager want. Interesting advice that we can maybe take to heart. How to win friends and influence people. The attitude, the object, what we want to do, and how we do it. So the Apostle Paul has the right attitude, but notice too that he has a persuasive and a personal argument. He's engaging with his audience. He's engaging with this friend Philemon. So not only does he appreciate Philemon, not only is he praying for him, not only is he encouraging him, but notice in verse uh, 17, he said, so if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. Let's bring it down to, to let's, let's make this personal. It's not abstract, but it's personal. I know, Philemon, that if I came to your house, you would be delighted. I can't come, quite literally, because I'm in a prison cell, but Onesimus can. I love this man, and I want you to welcome him. He's my son in the gospel. He's now your brother in the faith. So you welcome him as you would welcome me. That's personal. That's making it personal, saying, here is one whom I love, and here's one that you should love as well. But it's more than just personal, it's persuasive, because in verse 18, if he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand, I will pay it back. There is a a problem here, and the problem is genuine. Onesimus ran away, he shouldn't have run away. Onesimus probably stole and he shouldn't have stole. So there's a genuine loss, and Paul says, I'll make it up. I'll pay the price. And aren't we brought back full circle to the gospel itself? The gospel is, you and I have run away. We've run away from God. We've taken things that don't belong to us. We've done things that we shouldn't have done. We have created debts. We have built up debts for ourselves that we can't pay. We're like an Esimus. We need somebody, we need a benefactor to come who has the credit, who has the authority, who has the wherewithal to pay the debts that we can't pay. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ comes into a situation where there's brokenness. There's God who is holy and righteous. There's you and I who are neither holy nor righteous. There's a debt that has been accumulated. And Jesus Christ says, I can pay that debt. I will pay that debt. And I have paid that debt. So that broken relationship is now mended. And the Apostle Paul comes into a broken relationship and says, I'll pay it. I'll deal with it. Whatever he's done, charge it to me. Because there's a real relationship there based on love and appreciation and respect. So Paul comes into this situation and says, I will bear the price. I will bear the cost. I will deal with the situation. I want you two to come back together. So there's a real cost. If you want to become this kind of change maker, there's a cost. There's an effort. You need to expend energy and you might need to expend resources. But the object is worth it. 
The broken relationship can be healed. The, the fragmented uh, friendship or, or, or relationship that was there can now become a friendship. And Paul goes on to say, I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Paul's in a prison cell. Onesimus has been very useful to him. But he knows that that relationship between Onesimus and Philemon must be healed. So he sends them back. And he says, Philemon, I need refreshment. I'm thirsty. I need my thirst satisfied. I'm hungry. I need my hunger satisfied. You can refresh me in Christ. And isn't that a great way of uh, drawing people in? When we recognize that we have our own needs, we have our own weaknesses, we have our own limitations, and that we can recognize in the other, you can help me, you can encourage me, you can refresh me, would you please do that? I need that kind of refreshment, I need that kind of encouragement, I need that kind of boost just now, and it's within your power to do it. I have the power to deal with the debt, and I'll deal with it, he says to Philemon, but you have the ability to refresh me. Isn't that an example of a vibrant relationship, of a vibrant church, and of the power of the gospel demonstrating not only that barriers between us and God can be broken down, but barriers between the renegade slave and the aggrieved slaveholder can be broken down, so that these two men could look upon themselves no longer as enemies, but as brothers? That's the change that the gospel brings about in people's lives. And that's the change that we can bring about in the lives of other people. So Christ has changed you if you're a Christian this morning. He's come into your heart and he's come into your life. But can you see the power of the gospel at work in your life? Whereby you are able to help others. Broken friendships, broken relationships. Those who don't yet know the Lord, you introduce them to the Lord. Those who don't yet have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you introduce them to Jesus. But where there are breakdowns among Christians, you don't just step back and say, well, it's not really my business. I don't have anything. I, can, I can't do anything here. Uh, but you step in, and you're willing to, pay a, to, to bear the cost, and you're willing to make an effort. Why? Because it's worth the effort, and it's worth the cost. You and I were worth the effort and worth the cost that took Jesus to the cross and took him to the grave. And we are worth the effort to bring peace and to bring reconciliation, to bring refreshment. And maybe if you think of that today, is there anyone within this church or is there any fellow Christian that might need that boost, that encouragement, that refreshment? And is there something that I can do? Is there something that I can say that I might be able to refresh his heart or her heart in Christ? Is there any way that I can encourage somebody today? Is there any way I can show my appreciation of a fellow Christian? Is there any way I can show you or you can show me what we mean to each other? And maybe where there is brokenness to bring healing and where there is a lack of peace where we can bring the peace of the gospel to bear in other lives and in other situations. God changes everything. God changes everyone. And as we are changed by the gospel, we can bring change about in the lives of others. By his grace, for his good, for the good of the church, and for a witness to the world. If God can bring Paul and Philemon and Onesimus into one church, one savior, one life, bring them together in their relationships. What a vibrant witness to an unbelieving community 2,000 years ago. And if God can bring us together, what a vibrant witness to our community today.
May God bless his word to our hearts. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solace-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.